Well, I truly thought that the kids were going to be out of the service. So I'm going to have to tone down a little bit of what I was going to talk about. Because uh, it's something we have to talk about. But it is not necessarily something that I wanted little children to hear. But it's okay. I'll make it, I'll make it appropriate. Um, when I was living in Texas about 25 years ago... One of the churches in our town, one of the larger Baptist churches in our town, had had contracted with a ministry out of Canada called Reality Outreach Ministries. And this team of people came in from uh, wherever they were last. And they brought with them a motorhome and a big trailer. And in that trailer was all of the lights and all of the sound equipment and Bolts and bolts and bolts of silver and red mylar. And what they did was they would go from location to location doing an evangelistic, dramatic presentation. Um, dealing, and the title of this drama was Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And the whole premise of this dramatic presentation was you would see on stage the last few moments of a human being's life on earth, you would see an action, something that caused their death, the lights would go out, and then 10 seconds later, or five seconds later, the, the stage director would have the lights come back up slowly, but they'd come up bright and full, and now the audience was just being glared with all of this, a whole wall of silver mylar, except over on the side was red mylar. And standing on the platforms were all of these angels in just white robes. Then there was one angel standing up near the opening, the gate that's up at the top of the stairs. And that angel had a podium. And on that podium was the Book of Life. And the whole idea was these people had died. And now they were standing before the gate of heaven. And they were told, stay here for just a moment while we look for your name. And if their name was found written in the book of life, then Jesus would come out, welcome them with a, with a hug and bring them in. If they were not found in the book of life, the angels would cover their faces and the stage would go dark. And then the lights would come up on the red part of the mylar and the enemy of our soul and a couple of his minions would come out and take these people literally kicking and screaming into the gates of hell. It was a very, very, very in-your-face demonstration of what it means for the choices that you make as a human being on this earth deciding what your ultimate destiny is. Well, I have an acting ability and every year that I would audition for this, because what they did was they would come in with all the equipment but then they would bring, then all the local people would be the actors. And so we, we would audition on Friday uh, evening, and then they would cast the show, and then Saturday we would rehearse, and then Sunday, Saturday night, I guess, was the very first performance. So you would be, you would be uh, auditioned on Friday night, get your part, have the night to memorize your lines, and then on Sunday, Saturday morning, they would do the rehearsals all the way up until like three in the afternoon. Then you'd go home, eat, shower, dress, whatever, come back and do the very first performance. Then do another performance Monday night, do another performance uh, Sunday night, then Monday night, and then they would go on to the next location. Well, three years out of the four years that this church brought this group, I was cast as the enemy of our souls. And it was my job to make the enemy of our souls real, 
to the audience. And I chose to portray the enemy of our souls as someone who is insane with their jealousy over God and God's power. And they were so enraged that they had lost their place in heaven that they just were so insanely angry and jealous and dang- that they were dangerous. And so it was a very hard thing to do. There is um, one, and again, I, the kids are here, so I don't want to get into it very deeply, but there was this one scene where a family are driving in their minivan home from church, mom, dad, and the three kids, and then the other side of the stage, there's a father and a son, and the son is about 13 years old, and they're driving home from church. They're all, had been at the same church, and the five, um, family of five, they're all rejoicing because the youngest member of their family that morning went down to the altar and gave her heart to the Lord at the altar call when the pastor made the, the, the altar call and the little girl gave her heart to Jesus. And the other family, the boy says to his dad, you know, dad, when the pastor gave the altar call this morning, I really felt like I wanted to go down and talk to God about my sins, but I just... I was kind of scared, and, and you know, you've never done that. I've never seen you talk about God or anything like that. And, and so, Dad, I just didn't know what to do, and I wanted to talk with you before I actually went down there. So can we talk? And while the dad's driving, he says, Son, your mother, she's got enough religion for the both of us. We don't need to have that kind of a crutch in our life. He said, I, I, I think you've got plenty of time in your world in your life to, to, to make that kind of decision. You don't need to do it now. You're only 13. Ah! And both cars crash. The lights go out. The lights of heaven come up and the family of five stand up while the father and son stay on the ground. Family of five stand up. They're rejoicing. They recognize where they're at. And finally the father turns to the youngest and said, and you gave your heart to Jesus just in time. Look, here he comes. And Jesus comes out of heaven and welcomes the entire family and they walk into heaven. And then the lights dim. And then the lights come back up and the father and son stand up and like, the boy's like, dad, where are we? What's going on? Son, I think I made a horrible mistake. Oh son, please forgive me. Oh son, I'm so, dad, you stop it. You're making me scared. Dad, please. And you've got to help us. And they're talking to the angel. Please let us in. Please. My son, he's just a kid. He didn't know anybody. It was my fault. Don't let my son go to... And the angel goes, I'm sorry. Everyone covers their eyes. The lights come up on the gate of hell. And the enemy of our soul comes out. And he grabs the father by the nape of the neck. And he says, thanks, dad. We almost lost the boy. But you got him for us. (laughs) Take him. And then the little boy goes off screaming and the father goes off screaming. It's a horrible, 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 horrible thing. And I do not like, from that moment to this, I do not like even honoring that being by calling him by name. And if I were to be asked to do that again today, I don't think I could do it. I honestly don't. I think my heart is soured towards that. Not that I don't want to be evangelistic, but I don't want to in any way honor that. I don't want to in any way glorify that. Even though I was doing something that made it distasteful and made it hard for people to watch and made it apparent that there was a lot of anger and enmity between that and God, I just don't like honoring that. However, it is not something that you can ignore if you read the Bible. 
there is indeed an enemy of our souls that is very prominent. The one thing that I do hate as I see our world looking at it is I saw even this morning an image when I was looking for the image that I wanted for the screen this morning using John, 1 John chapter 4 verse 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I literally found an image that some pastor had put together with that scripture that showed Jesus arm wrestling with the enemy of our soul. And the earth was in the balance. I mean, literally, the earth was here. Jesus was on one side. The enemy was on the other side. They had their elbows resting on the earth. And they were arm wrestling for who's going to win the earth. See, the world has this mindset that the enemy of our soul is equal to. And that's not the case. The enemy of our soul is a created being subject to the, uh, the, the trying God. The enemy of our soul is a, is a created being who rebelled against the authority of the triune God and ended up getting cast out of the presence of God and was placed on this earth for a period of time. Why? I have no idea. That has never been revealed to us. But somehow, some way, the Father has ordained that the enemy of our soul will be part of the interplay with human beings as they are coming into or being drawn into relationship with God, the Father. And the text from this morning addresses just that. First John chapter 3 verse 8 simply says, oh before I get into this I wanted to let you know, I hate it when pastors go through 25 different scriptures and make it pack fast and forth and back and forth and back and forth, but unfortunately that's what we're doing this morning. So there's your list. Take your pictures, write them down. You got 20 minutes to get them all written down. Um, but these, and they are in the order that we're going to be doing. So um, we will read each one of them. We're going to talk about each one of them. It won't take as long as it looks. But First John chapter three verse eight: the one who does what is sinful, talking about the human being who does what is sinful, is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, as I read that, <clears throat> I was looking at a couple of things. What is sinful is of the devil. The devil has been doing sin since the beginning, whatever the beginning is. I'm assuming that means since the beginning of creation. But not necessarily human creation, but when he was created. I don't know. It's not given to us exactly. But the, the phrase that I keyed in on in this verse was the last phrase, the last sentence. The, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, quite frankly... As I started my reflection on this, I thought, if Jesus, the Son of God, came to destroy the devil's work, why 2,000 years later am I still struggling with the enemy of my soul affecting my life? If Jesus destroyed the work. I had to chew on that for a while. 
I went through scriptures. I looked all over the world. God took me on a cute journey. And you're about to go on that same journey with me. So let's start by asking, well, first of all, who is this enemy of our soul? If you look at John chapter 8, verse 44, in the gospel, Jesus is the one speaking. He is speaking to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and he is accusing them. And he says to them, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Hear that. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to truth. For there is no truth in him. Hear that. He was a murderer from the beginning. He he did not hold to the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies. He is speaking his native language. For he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. That is an incredibly powerful indictment. And these were not something I made up. These are the words that John recorded as Jesus spoke them. So these are the words of Jesus as recorded by John in his gospel. The enemy of our souls is a murderer from the beginning, does not hold on to truth. There is no truth in him. And when he lies, it is his native language because not only is he a liar to his core, but he inherits, I mean, he gives birth to all lies. Think about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. I'm reading this particular verse out uh, out of the Amplified Version. I love how it stretches it out a little bit and gives a little bit of flesh to what we're talking about. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4 says, the ampl- from the Amplified Version says, but even if our gospel, the glad tidings, also be hidden, obscured, covered up with a veil that hinders the knowledge of God, it is hidden only to those who are perishing and obscured, only to those who are spiritually dying and veiled only to those who are lost. For the God of this world has blinded the unbelievers' minds that they should not discern the truth Preventing them from seeing the illuminating light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the Messiah, who is the image and likeness of God. That was a lot to hear, but let me highlight some of the things that we have about the enemy in this. The enemy hides the knowledge of God to those who are perishing. He obscures the message of the gospel to those who are spiritually dying and he veils it, makes it unable to be seen only to those who are lost. But this was the thing that got me when I read this. Paul calls the enemy of our souls the God of this world. Now, it is a small g, but that bugged me. The God of this world. There's power there that says that he has limited, but he has power. It says he has authority. Limited authority, but he has authority. It says he is worshipped. 
obviously not by Christians, but the enemy of our souls receives worship as a god. This is horrible to think about, but it's reality. And I personally know people from my own acquaintance, not in this community necessarily, but people that I've come across who were worshipers of the enemy, who have since changed and are now Christian and in right relationship with God. But they indeed believed in, not only believed in, but served, not only believed and served, but they truly offered worship to the enemy of my soul. Mm. That's who this is. A murderer from the beginning, a father of lies, there is no truth, speaks only lies, has great power, limited, but great power, is revered, honored, and worshipped, and served as a god by people on this earth who don't know the truth. Now, I said it was limited power. So what power does this enemy of our souls hold? Well, if you look at 1 Peter verses 5, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter wrote, Be alert and sober of mind. The enemy, to me, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. One of the scholars that I read about this particular passage said that they think that Peter might have chosen this image of a roaring lion because it was written about the time that Nero was the Caesar. And it was the time that Caesar, the Nero, Nero the Caesar, was condemning Christians to be killed in the Colosseum by being torn apart by wild beasts, specifically lions. So there was this image of power and fear of being destroyed and ripped apart and, and devoured. Christians being devoured by that powerful enemy. So that's one of the reasons, that's one of the, now whether or not that's exactly what Peter was thinking of, I don't know. But what made me sad when I read that, I've read this scripture for years and years and years and years and years. But what made me sad was whenever I think of a lion, I always think of Aslan. The hero, the Christ image, Christ figure in the books, the Chronicles of Narnia. One of power and great strength and honor and goodness. And now my image is... <laughs> Even though I've always, always read this and read it as a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, I never thought about that image. One of the pictures that I saw uh, looking for greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world was an image of a lion. And I went, ah, I can't use that. Because <laughs> it has a mixed meaning. But the idea here that is being presented, what kind of power does this enemy have? Think about the strength and the power with one swipe of its arm, one swipe with its claws extended, can destroy physical flesh. The jaws can crush. There is no, from a human perspective, there is no fighting that. You can't defend against that. It is almost certain death when that finally connects with you. It's a horrible, horrible image, but it is a statement of the power that the enemy of our souls has. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Talking about when you were veiled from the truth by the enemy of your souls. Verse 2, In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So what is the power we see here? We see that he is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Quite honestly, I don't fully understand that. Other than to say, God has authorized the enemy of my soul to have authority as a ruler over the sphere that surrounds the ball that is the earth. I I can't understand other than to say like the first or the second heaven, if you have any understanding of what that would be. The first heaven would be our atmosphere. The second heaven would be outer space. The third heaven would be heaven. And so somehow, some way, the enemy of my soul has authority to be a ruler within this sphere, this atmosphere, if you will. Think about what we talked about uh, last Sunday night with Daniel and the angel that was sent as a dispatch to answer the prayer that Daniel had prayed. It took him 21 days to respond to the prayer. Not that, it, not that he wasn't dispatched immediately, but it took him 21 days to get from the time he was dispatched to actually be in Daniel's presence because a battle was going on in the air, in the atmosphere above Daniel. And that is what this is referring to. The enemy of our souls has some type of authority over the earth. And that same spirit, that enemy, is at work in those who are disobedient. If you were to look at our world today and compare it to the world you knew when you were a child, what do you think is the most prominent theme that comes to your mind when you think about how the world is today compared to what it was when you were a child? I think evil, I think chaotic, I think almost out of control. Who in the world as a child would have ever even dreamed that somebody would have gone into a church or a synagogue and shot people just because they were going to church? How many of you went to school worried that anybody would break into your school and shoot you while you were in your classroom? I have a daughter that did. That was 20 years ago. I can remember one, we had come back, we were at the church. It was a Saturday evening or late, yeah, late Saturday evening. And the person who was supposed to meet us at the church had forgotten to come. So we didn't have access to get into the building. So we're standing in the parking lot waiting for moms and dads to come and pick up all the kids. And there was a light on in the hallway upstairs. And we, there was a window up on the second floor of the church. And I jokingly said, oh my goodness, there's somebody in the window. And my daughter went into a full-blown freak-out, panic attack, snotty-nosed hysterics. And it was everything in me to hold her and help her to feel loved and protected and safe. And when she was finally calm enough to tell me what was going on, what she told me was that she had been living in abject fear and horror that what had happened at Columbine, just less than an hour's drive away from us, was going to happen at her school. But she wasn't telling us any of that. So when I said, oh, there's somebody in the building, it just triggered all of that for her, and she lost it. Why should children have to live in that? But that's the world we're living in right now. Why? Because the enemy of our souls has authority, and more and more and more human beings are not 
submitting to the, um, to the Almighty God, but they are indeed salt serving the enemy. They are allowing themselves to be disillusioned. They are allowing themselves to be veiled. They are allowing themselves to be duped. And they are serving and ultimately worshiping the enemy of our souls. Now, should we fear this? I say no. First John chapter 1, I mean chapter 4 verse 4, which we talked about already. You are of God. You belong to him. This is 1 John 4, 4. And have already defeated and overcome them, the agents of the Antichrist. Because he who lives in you is greater, greater and mightier than he who is in the world. If you are in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you know that your sins are forgiven, if you know that you're living a righteous and holy life before God, if you know that there is nothing in your life that is, is keeping you connected, keeping you from being connected rightly to God, then you have nothing to fear when it comes to the darkness and the one who rules the darkness. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and hear this, he will flee from you. Now, the caution is this, you as a Christian, as a human being, do not have the right or the authority to stand there and go, Enemy of my soul! I command you! That's not what this is talking about. It says, submit yourselves to God. Resist whatever it is that the enemy of your soul is trying to do. And when they continue to come at you and come at you, you say, you go to God. You go to the Father and let Him deal with you. In the name of Jesus, by the authority of Jesus, I command that you go see the Father. You can no longer have access. I have uh, right and privileges as a child of God that you must flee according to the word of God. And they have to flee. That is not the same as you standing there saying, "In I have, I have power over you because I'm a child of God. Eh, you're getting really thin ice there when you say you have power over the enemy of your soul. Now, there will be some Christians who will tell you that I'm wrong. That's their business. But I've been there, folks. I have been in situations where there was spiritual possession and spiritual oppression and darkness. And it is not a fun and easy, it is a fearful thing. But it is not something to be afraid of. Because as a Christian, I have all of heaven behind me. But it's Jesus that they're seeing, not me. It's Jesus' authority that they're submitting to, not me. There's a scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the recent movies that came out. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And at one point, Lucy, the youngest of the Pevensey children, is standing at this bridge. And she's standing there trying to fend off the enemy. And she lifts up the small dagger, the short little knife that Father Christmas gave her as a weapon. And she's holding it as best she can. This little eight or nine or ten year old girl, she's standing there holding it. And all of a sudden the enemy goes, and turns and runs. And she's like... Wow! Well, then the camera pans back and you see Aslan is standing right behind her going. And so the enemy was afraid of the God that they saw. They weren't afraid of the little girl. And that's the same thing I'm talking, trying to commit here. You submit to God. You resist. You, you stand there and say, you know, in, in Ephesians it tells you, put on the armor of God and stand firm. Because God's got you. The other thing that's interesting about the armor of God, 
it never talks about anything on your back. It's always a breastplate, and the, the, the feet, and the boots, and the shield, and the helmet. But it doesn't talk anything about, about your back. And I've heard teaching that said, if you turn and run, <laughs> you're all exposed. But if you stand there with your protection on and God at your back, nothing can get you. Now, this is now bringing me to the question that I presented at the very beginning. We know who the enemy is. We know what the enemy's power is. We know that we shouldn't fear the enemy. But if the reason Jesus, the Son of God, appeared was to destroy the devil's work, why does it seem that the devil still has power? And Hebrews gave me some insight. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 18 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too shared in their humanity, so that by Jesus' death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is, the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are also being tempted. But this this statement at the beginning, Jesus came to break the power of him who holds the power of death. I don't know your testimony. I know my testimony. I have literally been carried by ambulance to the hospital because I thought I was having a heart attack. I was in my office downstairs. My wife was in the house. I could not get her. I couldn't reach her by phone. I tried calling Carolyn Purdy. I couldn't reach her. Finally, I called 911. The ambulance came, Carolyn came, my wife came, everybody's there, they're literally doing all this stuff, giving me all the medications, hauling me out on the gurney, putting me in the ambulance and heading me to the hospital. I truly thought I was dying. I truly did. Do you know what my response was while I was holding on to the phone with the 911 operator? While the 911 operator was assuring me that somebody was on their way and not letting me go on the phone, I was with my right hand writing a note to my wife and my children. And I was telling them that I love them. And I was telling them that I was in my right relationship with God the Father through the blood of Christ. And I had no fear of where I was heading. And that I promised I would see them when they came to join me. That's what I have as reality for me. I do not fear dying. I don't want to suffocate, okay? I'd rather fall asleep and not wake up. But I do not fear dying. I do not fear going on beyond what this life is. Because I know that I know that I know that my life has been secured by the power of Jesus' blood and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. So I don't have to be afraid of the enemy. He can't do anything to me. Maybe he can hurt my body. Maybe he can take away my car. Maybe he can make me sick. Maybe he can take away my money. But he can't hurt me. It's kind of like the story of Job. Think about it. 
God gave him authority to do bad stuff, but he said, but you may not touch him. He then gave him authority to touch his health, but you still may not touch his spirit or his soul. You may not take his life, because that's mine. So that's the power that Jesus came and broke, was the power of the enemy for us to fear death. Ephesians chapter 2. We've already looked at 1 through 3. Now let's look at 4 and 5. But because of God's great love for us. God who is rich in mercy. Made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. In the first part of that passage in Ephesians. It says. That we once followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But now, because of God's love and mercy and grace, we are no longer dead in our transgressions and sins. We have been saved. We have nothing left to fear. There is no power of the enemy over us anymore. Now, does that mean we will never fear again? No, that doesn't mean I'll never fear again. Does that mean when I come in contact with evil, I will not be hard or bothered or upset? No. But it does mean that I know that I have authority and I have power and I don't have to allow the enemy to scare the wits out of me because the Bible gives me clear, specific promises. Well, let me just, let me just read to you my last two paragraphs because it's easier to read it than it is to try and paraphrase it. This is what I wrote to you guys as I was writing this sermon. I imagine the devil as a toothless lion who is chained up. He no longer holds power over me. I now see clearly the truth of the gospel, which the enemy of my soul for so long had blinded me from seeing. And with my clear vision and my understanding of God's word, I know the authority I have as a child of God. But as the Apostle Peter admonished in 1 Peter 5.8, I am not to be careless. Instead, I am to be alert and sober. Excuse me, alert and sober-minded, ever watching for the schemes of the enemy who desires nothing less than my eternal damnation. Just because the lion is restrained and toothless, it doesn't mean he can't crush me with his great strength if I get too near. I know from reading the book of the Revelation that the enemy will utterly be defeated at the end of time. However, for reasons unknown to me, God has chosen to allow the enemy to have power in this world over the hearts and minds of humans who have aligned themselves with the enemy. He still is very dangerous. And for that reason, I need to ever be mindful and on guard. Just as Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, was able to be tempted by the enemy, so am I. So are you. Following Jesus' example, we must know the Scriptures so well that when the enemy tries to tempt us, we can counter the lie with the truth found in Scripture. One truth we must always remember is the one found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. For no temptation 
No trial regarded as enticing to sin. No matter how it comes or where it leads, no temptation has overcome you and laid hold on you that is not common to humanity. That is, no temptation or trial has come to you that is beyond human resistance. And that it is not adjusted and adapted and belonging to human experience and such as any human can bear. But God is faithful to his word and to his compassionate nature. He can be trusted not to let you be tempted and tried and assayed beyond your ability and strength of resistance and your power to endure. But with the temptation, God will always also provide the way out, a means of escape to a landing place that you may be capable and strong and powerful to bear up under it patiently. That's a powerful promise. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And then finally, the enemy's work has been destroyed by Jesus. He can no longer keep us blinded to the truth. But that doesn't mean the enemy isn't always searching for ways to cause us to turn from the truth and the author of that truth. We must ever be on guard. We must not walk so close to the danger that the enemy can reach out and snag us with his claws. And if the enemy does try to snag us, we must submit ourselves to God. We must resist the temptation. And God will always provide us with a way out. And as my friend Evelyn would say, Pastor, that's a good word.